Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. This episode of America's 360 was originally released on February 7th, 2022. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm your host, John Molesky, and this program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, when it comes to energy production, the Americas are a powerhouse of a region. From the hemisphere's vast solar and wind energy potential to existing oil refineries, the Americas are home to a wealth of renewable and non-renewable energy sources. But how best to use these resources often leads to heated debates on national and international scales. Conversations on energy policies and cooperation on natural resource management have become increasingly important for the region. Throughout agreements, or through agreements, I should say, and forums such as the Paris Agreement and COP26, the UN has challenged nations across the world to commit to cleaner energy. While some nations in the hemisphere have risen to that challenge, policy decisions in others may have the opposite effect, creating barriers to establishing environmentally sustainable energy matters. Joining us to discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of the hemisphere's energy picture is our America's 360 Roundtable. Please say hello to Latin American Program Director, Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. Argentina Project Director, Benjamin Gadan. John, which ones of us are the good, bad, and the ugly? <laughs> that will be determined by the, the listeners, Benjamin. Uh, Mexico Institute Director, Andrew Rudman. Hey, John. And Canada Institute Director, Christopher Sands. Thanks very much, John. Yeah, welcome back to all of you as well. Is it too late for me to say Happy New Year? I know that... It's already February, but what the hell? Happy New Year anyway. So so let's dig in, uh, beginning with Mexico, Andrew, that ha- is in the forefront of many discussions regarding energy of late. Uh, can you provide us with some insight on what is the latest from Mexico? Uh, I'll, I'll try to be quick, but I, I think it's important to keep in mind uh, that energy really is the third rail of politics in Mexico ever since the oil nat- nationalization in, in 1938. Uh, you had an energy reform in 2013, which um, allowed a lot more private investment in oil as well as in renewables, including the possibility for private generation to sell back into the grid. Um, President Lopez Obrador, however, favors a return really to the primacy of the state-owned oil company and the state electricity company and has proposed a reform that would essentially undo the 2013 reform. And, and what that would do is favor use of fossil fuels in ways that are that are obviously inconsistent both with Mexico's Paris commitments and I think at least as importantly with the Biden administration's efforts to promote uh, policies to address climate change as a region, as a region of North America. So um, Secretary Granholm, the Secretary of Energy, was in Mexico last week and, and raised some of these concerns with the Mexicans and really uh, more forcefully than we've seen from the Biden administration previously. Thanks, St. Andrew. And Chris, let's turn to Canada that has positioned itself, the country, as a leader in terms of clean energy policy, green energy policies. Uh, how is that working out? Uh, is it possible to uh, be the, the hemispheric leader? 
Well, I think Canada's in a funny position, almost has two faces to the world on energy. On the one hand, you're right, Ontario, Quebec, uh, Manitoba, British Columbia, all provide hydroelectricity. Uh, they're quite huge manuf- uh, producers of hydroelectricity, most of which uh, they sell in the United States. And so they've been trying to be part both of their own energy transition and the energy transition in the U.S., At the same time, uh, Ontario is one of the leading global uh, players on nuclear energy, having just refurbished to the cost of many, many billions of dollars their their reactor fleet. And at the same time, they have some leading technology on small modular nuclear, as well as wind and, of course, uh, solar. What makes Canada tricky, however, is that they are also a major producer of oil and gas. Alberta famously with the oil sands, but also a significant conventional production, and Newfoundland, which uh, has really benefited in recent years from offshore oil uh, of a very conventional nature. Put that all together, and the challenge for Canada is to have credibility talking about renewable energy, while at the same time trying to get its uh, fossil fuels into international markets. So it's a love love them, hate them relationship with a lot of the international uh, environmental movement players. And Canada, as a result of this, has gone through a series of, of the UN climate change talks with both bold pledges and one of the worst records of meeting their commitments in the past of any country. In fact, it's ironic, even the US has done a better job of meeting the commitments it then tries to walk away from than Canada has uh, because of this dual personality. So aspirations are there for Canada for sure, but uh, but this is a tricky area for them. You know, Chris, what you describe as a, a dual personality conundrum for Canada would pretty much sum up the discussion of energy around the world, right? It's It tends to be binary. It's, it's either fossil fuels, renewables, and somewhere lingering off in the distance is nuclear, which finds its way in and out of the conversation. Cindy, as you look across the, the Americas, and Latin America in particular, what do you see in that regard? Do the countries break down into those who have invested heavily and are still deeply committed to fossil fuels and those who are trying to turn the page and look to something more sustainable? Well, I'd say that most of the countries in the region are looking to increase the production, the domestic production of uh, renewable energy. They see it quite rightly as a source of jobs, um, uh, a way to attract international investment. And it's all those things. I mean, um, a country like Brazil is second in the world, only behind China, and certainly the leader in Latin America in terms of the number of jobs that are generated in the renewable energy sector. Um, There are countries such as Brazil, as well as Colombia, uh, that get a a very significant portion of their domestic energy or domestic electricity uh, generation from hydropower. Um, In the case of Colombia, it's about 70%. In the case of Brazil, about 65%. And one of the difficulties, of course, with hydropower, um, it is renewable, but water is one of the resources that is being heavily impacted by climate change. Um, So many people are pivoting towards much greater investments in solar and in wind, which are not as susceptible Um, to those changes in climate. And I would say Chile, in terms of solar power production, um, is and and the generation of electricity from solar power is certainly a regional leader. The Atacama Desert in the north 
um, is a place just covered with uh, solar panels um, and um, has one of the sort of a technical term, but has the highest solar incidence in the entire world, which is sort of the way that scientists describe um, the relationship between the angle of the sun as it hits um, a flat surface. Um, so Chile, you know, is uh, is a powerhouse, but the entire continent has enormous coastlines. Um, all countries, with the exception of Bolivia, um, have access to um, a coastline, and that is also a, a tremendous uh, has tremendous growth potential. John, the coastline and water use issues are big for Canada as well, and. It, it, it strikes me that one of the, the areas where you're seeing this tension and this duality kind of come to clash is the potential for hydrogen as a uh, fuel for fuel cells that could be a really major contribution on the transportation side of addressing climate change. The dilemma here is that there are two ways that are commonly used to get hydrogen. One is out of water, which you use electrolysis to take that hydrogen out of H2O, and the other is out of hydrocarbons, getting the carbon out of, uh, getting the hydrogen out and then capturing the carbon. So this is referred to as green hydrogen coming from water and blue hydrogen coming from uh, hydrocarbons with carbon capture and storage. And exactly what Cindy is saying kind of plays out because many environmentalists prefer green hydrogen because it doesn't have any fossil component that that makes them feel more comfortable with it. But clean drinking water and the value of water is uh, is even though it's abundant in Canada, it's still uh, a major environmental impact. So if you're Alberta, if you're other parts of Canada, you're looking to do blue hydrogen and what the market will bear. We'll have to wait and see. But it shows just that you can pull yourself in two different directions, even as you try to move uh, forward on uh, alternative energy. Benjamin, uh, you know, when I take us down dark paths in seeing the, the the problems that are faced and the challenges, you have been our resident optimist who always uh, reminds us of where the opportunities lie. So I'm wondering in this regard, as you survey the landscape, what, what are some of the opportunities as it relates to energy production? I mean, the opportunities are immense. And fortunately, in, in this conversation, I've had help by other panelists pointing out a lot of the economic development opportunities. Look, the region is actually not that big a carbon emitter when, when compared to, you know, much of the globe. And this transition can be looked at mostly as an opportunity. Um, you know, some of the addiction to oil in many of the countries is actually for export and not really for use domestically because of what Cindy pointed out, the use of hydro in some places, countries like Uruguay that, that have had remarkable transformations to renewable energy production locally for domestic use. Costa Rica is another compelling example. Um, if you look, for example, at lithium, you know, more than half of the world's lithium is in just three countries in South America. They are Argentina, Chile, and, and Bolivia. That's going to be this key input for batteries that are in electric vehicles that are used for utility-scale storage of renewable energy. So I look at the you know, region and see nothing but opportunity in the global energy transition. You know, Cindy, or, or I think Andrew, in your opening remarks about Mexico, it was you who talked about the U.S. and, and some pressures from the U.S. to, to approach these issues in a certain way. What can the rest of you tell us, or, or you as well, Andrew, more about how U.S. policy factors into the equation? Do the countries of the Americas care about the U.S. policy in such a way where their policy decisions are reflected in that concern? Let me, let me jump in, John. You know, obviously the, um, the energy transition in 
the United States is very much stalled right now um, in terms of congressional funding or approval of the uh, Build Back Better um, legislation that President Biden has asked the Congress to fund, which has significant amounts of money uh, for climate change adaptation um, and transition uh, and, and the energy transition. And I think in, in Latin America, certainly, um, countries are very keen on having U.S. investment, European investment in their renewables sectors. Um, there is not enough foreign capital uh, domestically in Latin America to really make these kinds of things viable. Um, and the real question that I think many countries have is how much the U.S. government, the Biden administration in particular, is going to put its weight and its resources behind um, this kind of financing. Um, in addition to the Build Back Better Act in the United States, there's a Build Back Better World, uh, which thus far is mostly a talking point. Um, and I think a lot of Latin American countries are anxious to see some real resources from the U.S. government, from international development banks, um, and others to um, to make this possible. Benjamin Gudan and Andrew Rudman have a couple things to add here. Sure. No, I, I mean, I think things we haven't discussed that are also opportunities, Brazil and Argentina have civilian nuclear energy programs that are that are quite advanced. And so that's always a controversial uh, topic in energy discussions, but it is a relatively carbon free option and, you know, could be an opportunity for both those countries to spread those technologies. Um, you know, again, I think if you just look across the board, the countries themselves have demonstrated how you can make this transition, not as much in transportation, but certainly in electricity generation and use. And I think, you know, they have a lot to offer the world. Cindy's right, though. They need a great deal of capital to really play that role. Andrew. I, I think Benjamin raises a, a good point. I was listening to a podcast a while ago suggesting that uh, nuclear, at least in the short term, is essential to making the transition. And then you think about all the all the challenges and sort of nuclear's image, uh, despite, as, as Benjamin points out, there's lots of it in, in Argentina and Brazil, but certainly here in the U.S., extremely controversial, although there are some new mini nuclear plants being constructed. Um, you know, in Mexico, and going back to the whole dichotomy issue, uh, Lopez Obrador has been very um, spoken positively about the importance of climate change and about what Mexico wants to do to to address it. And yet, as I mentioned before, the, the real focus is on the use of, of fossil fuels. So I, I think you see those dichotomies internally as well as internationally. And, and, and certainly the, the fact that the Secretary of Energy went to Mexico and raised it just shows how much it's going to play into the U.S.-Mexico and, and presumably the North American relationship. Chris Sands. Um, John, I think this also points to something that's really challenging. We came out of the Glasgow uh, COP26 talks with the United States, Canada, and many other regions committing to net zero by 2050. And to do that, we're going to have to confront a series of trade-offs. In order to make it to that goal, we may have to accept nuclear, even though some environmentalists don't like it, or large-scale hydro, or compromises on blue hydrogen. And I think that's where the maturing of this conversation is starting to lead us, to think in terms of how best we can get there and who's going to pay the price of that energy transition. It's an important issue across the region and around the world, but I think, as Benjamin and, and the others have said, this is a, a region that is relatively well off. We have choices. We just need to take them. Mm -hmm. Cindy Arnson. Yeah, I'd just like to follow up on what Andrew said a minute ago about Mexico and its reliance on on uh, on oil um, exports. 
there are many countries in Latin America that are oil exporters. Brazil, principal among them, probably on a par or greater uh, than Mexico, but Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Argentina also have domestic oil production and domestic natural gas production. And at the same time that countries are hungry for, um, for, for the resources to pursue this kind of energy transition in their countries, no one right now is talking about cutting back on oil exports because the country, the, as we've discussed many times in, in this podcast, the, uh, the region has just been slammed economically and countries are looking to get back on their feet and they're looking to do that however they can, including by attracting new investment into traditional uh, hydrocarbon sectors. Cindy, is the infrastructure in place to exploit the opportunities that might get people back on track or nations back on track? You know, I think of things like we we can produce the energy, but then we have to get it somewhere, right? There's transportation of it. We all followed the saga of the Keystone XL pipeline and other issues. We now see a pipeline in Russia that is also a major geopolitical issue. Is the infrastructure in place to exploit the opportunities? Well, Keystone is related to oil. I mean, the main issue for infrastructure in, in, in Latin America around renewable energy is transmission, is the ability to get, you know, to store solar power and then make it available throughout the country, especially in countries such as Chile that are north to south, you know, several thousand miles, you know, or I, I may be exaggerating, but it's a very, very long distance so that there are you know, many infrastructure challenges in Latin America, in the transportation sector and others, but but having the ability, the technical ability to produce in one place and get it to another um, is an enormous... Um, yeah, it's one giant power grid necessary. Benjamin. One thing I think is helpful is that, you know, in, to some degree, a green agenda is being imposed upon the region by a lot of interesting international actors. You know, companies themselves are demanding high ESG standards for their own use and production of, of electricity. You've seen that in Mexico. One of the actors that's really pushing back is not just the U.S. government, but multinational companies operating in Mexico that want to be using more green energy. You see the Chinese have finally stopped funding coal-fired power plants abroad, including in Latin America. The Europeans are threatening to reduce imports of goods that have a very uh, large environmental footprint. So I think, you know, a lot of international external actors are telling the region that it needs to go a little bit faster along this path. Cindy's right. It isn't cost-free and it does require a lot of investment. But I do think, you know, more or less, we're kind of pushing in that direction. Uh, in the very brief time we have remaining, I want to ask each of you for a one-sentence response of what is the energy story in your region or your area of focus that you're going to be following over the next six months to a year, whether it's tied to an election or whatever it might be? Andrew Rudman. Uh, that's easy, John. It, it'll be the energy reform, which ideally, according to the president, will be voted on by the end of April. See, I went to you first, Andrew, because I knew you would be ready. It was easy. And now we'll see the degree of difficulty if it increases. Chris Sands. Well, John, uh, I hope I have a good answer for you. I think the challenge for Canada is going to be um, looking at carbon border adjustments. Uh, Canada is going has pledged, Justin Trudeau's pledged to raise the national carbon price from $50 a ton to $170 a ton. And yet Canada's biggest trading partner, the United States, has maybe 11 jurisdictions with a carbon price. And for the most part, they're well below 170. So for him to achieve his goal, he needs to adjust the price of American imports at the border 
USMCA allows that, but it'll still be a huge fight with auto companies and others that move things back and forth across the border. So the trade-off there, the challenge, can he implement that increase uh, or will he have to walk back, that back for fear of a fight with the U.S.? Mm. Cindy Arnson. I think the key thing I'll be watching is the ability of countries to go from the dream of transforming their energy grids to the reality of doing so. And part of that, or a big part of that, is going to be the availability of, of foreign capital um, and, uh, and private investment, public investment, to make those kinds of things possible. You know, speaking of renewable energy, our own Mr. Sunshine, Benjamin Gadan, gets the final word. I know you're going to surprise us, and one of these weeks you're going to go dark on us. I know it's going to happen, but not this week. <laughs> Indeed, no. <laughs> Inexhaustible supply of good news for you, Chad. <laughs> very renewable. No, I think Cindy's right. I mean, I think the region has very high political risk right now, and a lot of investors are skittish. You look at a place like Argentina, people just don't want to put money in, and what's the one area where they're not so risk-averse? It's this unconventional oil and gas. It's fracking in this area called Baca Muerta, where companies like Chevron are still willing to take the risks and operate and make money there. And so the question that Cindy asks rightly is, when will this other money come in at the scale needed to realize these alternative uh, opportunities. Great. Thanks. Thanks to all of you, Cindy, Benjamin, Chris, and Andrew. We look forward to learning more from you in future episodes. Uh, this episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Cecily Fasanella, and Zoe Reed, with the assistance of Hazmin Aguiar-Rangel, Kadeen, uh, uh, Caden, I'm sorry, sorry about that, Caden, Caden Kuntz, and our newest member, Anita Kirschenbaum. Thanks to all of you as well. Uh, we hope you enjoyed today's discussion and you'll join us again soon. Until then, for all of us at America's 360 and the Wilson Center, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.